everybody, I'm Otto. Never in my life have I been a headline speaker. Where did she go? April. Headline speaker. I'm so impressed. I've, I've spoken in Arkansas and Mississippi and Tennessee and Oklahoma and New Mexico, and I've never been a headline speaker. Matter of fact, there's never been a headline speaker at any of those conferences that I've ever spoken at. I believe this is the first time in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous that there's been a headline speaker. And I'm damn proud of it. You, you wish, Bill. <laughs> it's done, Bill. I'm having a great time here in El Paso. I really appreciate being invited. It's a wonderful facility. That was the best conference dinner I ever ate. If you guys, <laughs> really good. If you guys didn't do the dinner, you missed a good one. It wasn't like some of those. <laughs> it was really good. And uh, I've just had a ball. I've enjoyed the, this. Usually I have a host. This time I've had a host family. Uh, that's been a nice change. Uh, meeting Stephanie and Chance and, and uh, Schnapps and, and, you know, when your dog gets on you, then you stink. See, that's the way they made sure I took a shower before I came up here to talk tonight. But uh, Mel's quite a, quite a wonderful host. He was standing with a big sign when I got off the plane, you know, uh, and uh, so I could find him. And then uh, they took me all around town last night and asked me, if, you know, if there's anything you want, you know, anything you need. Like, I won't milk that one. <laughs> I got this big Christmas list. Uh, but he took me up to the to the lookout point up there where you can see everything, you know, in the river. And God, it, it was really pretty. And I was really surprised. There was a lot of people up there. I guess people go up there and park. Do people go up there and make out? I don't know. Did they mail? He was looking in all the windows. <laughs> he ought to know. And he drove me around, all around El Paso, and showed me where the billboards were that used to have his picture on it. <laughs> yeah. I, I was on that one right there. Oh, it's a big one, yeah. Was... I used to get drunk over there. Yeah. How about some architecture, Mel? <laughs> so he's been good. I enjoyed meeting Lori. See, when you, when you meet the wife, then you get the truth. See? Then you get the truth. See, and Lori's telling me about Mel. And, uh, you know, before Mel hurt his back, they liked to hike and camp and get out amongst nature. And uh, Lori was telling me about the last time they went uh, camping before Mel hurt his back. And they were deep in the woods, these big heavy packs and rucks on their back. And they come upon a bear. You wouldn't do that if you knew I was the headline speaker. <laughs> They come upon a bear, stopped them dead in their tracks. This bear was staring at them, and they were staring at the bear. Mel slowly began to remove his backpack and started to pull out his tennis shoes and remove his hiking boots. Lori looked at him and said, Mel, you can't outrun that bear. He said, I don't have to. I just have to outrun you. She's a good Al-Anon. She helped him tie his shoes. 
Good morning to trip and fall. Anyway, I'm having a great time enjoying the fruit and the food, and the beds are comfy, and the fellowship's wonderful. I've really enjoyed myself. That'll be with headlines tomorrow in in the press. Anyway, I'll I'll get going here in a second. My name's Otto. Did I say that? I'm Otto. I'm alcoholic. I like to drink. I drink well. <laughs> Some habits die hard. I mean, what's the point? Why do they make lids for those things? I don't know. I never set out to be an alcoholic. That wasn't what I wanted to be when I grew up. I really, really wanted to be a good kid. You know, all I've ever really wanted to be was a good son, a good neighbor, a good brother, good husband, good lover, good... Good citizen. Yeah, those are the things I wanted to be. A good student. Yeah, and I really tried hard. I really did. I bust my butt. You know, if want to and try was all that was required, I would have been a smashing success in my life. Because I was really trying. But it just never seemed to work out for me. I grew up in a family where there was a lot of uh, chaos and mixed messages. And so there was a lot of confusion in my life and the family, in the lives of my uh, brothers and sisters and and my mother and dad. Uh, my father was a police officer in Oklahoma City. He was a cop. I like being the son of a cop. My dad was my first higher power. <laughs> and he was powerful. He could walk out into the street, raise his hand, show that badge, blow a whistle, and the whole world would stop. We go to the movies, he'd show that badge. We don't pay to get in. We go to the circus, I'm sitting with the kids in the front row. So that we can ride on the calliope with the clowns because we're Freddy's kids. There was nobody like my dad. A cop. There's one that has all power. That one is dad. (laughs) May you mind him now. (laughs) And boy, if you didn't mind, there was hell to pay. There was a lot of hell to pay at my house growing up. I, didn't, uh, I don't blame my parents for me being an alcoholic. I think I was affected by alcoholism long before I ever took my first drink. Drinking was quite commonplace in the home where I grew up. Drunkenness was commonplace in the home where I grew up. Violence was commonplace in the home where I grew up. And I had no idea that there was anything peculiar about that because, you see, my dad's a police officer. He's the law. He must be right. And that's why I say there was a lot of confusion and stress growing up in this chaotic home. I can remember uh, the things my dad tried to teach me. You know, things like uh, practice makes perfect and where there's a will, there's a way. And if anyone can, you can. Quitters never win and winners never quit. Exceptions are made for exceptional people. You can do anything you put your mind to, son. Don't you cry. God, I'll give you something to cry about. Don't feel. Don't feel anything but happy. If you don't feel good, there's something wrong with you. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Mama be crying or somebody be sick. What's wrong with you? There's something wrong. So I learned quick. Don't ever feel bad. Don't cry. Don't feel bad. One of the rules was a man's word is his bond. Always tell the truth. Always give a man a good hand. Don't hand me no little wet noodles. I'll tear it all. You get a hold of me. And you got a hold of a man when you shake mine. Always tell the truth, son. But what I learned was 
truth will get you killed in my house. <laughs> I learned quick. You just tell Dad whatever he wants to hear. And I started lying when I was just a little boy. And I got really good at it. And it got to where if my mouth was moving, I was lying. And I became a chameleon. And I, I became a person who wanted so, so much to please you. And I would just read you. And I'd start talking, and if your expression changed, well, then I'd change the way I talked and the direction I was going, because I just wanted for you to like me. All I ever wanted was for you guys to like me and accept me and to be a part of, and, you know, kind of my little Rodney King impersonation. You know, why can't we all just get along? (laughs) I was really trying hard. But we couldn't get along. Uh, My dad worked two or three shifts trying to make ends meet. I really admired my dad because I know he was trying so hard. To, to make a family, to make a home. You know, was, he was back from World War II and excited about having this little cracker box house that we were all growing up in. But, you know, it was a home. And if you come from the cotton fields like my mother did, that was a whole bunch. And she was proud to have it. I know they were trying. And so my dad was working two or three jobs. And if I wanted to see him, I'd have to go down to the tavern to see him because that's where he'd go when he wasn't working. And you can't begrudge the man a drink. He's working two and three jobs. And so when I wanted to see my dad, I'd go down to the tavern. And I liked the tavern. I liked the tavern from the time I was a little boy till the time I got sober. <laughs> I liked I liked the jukebox and I liked the bookies and the parlay cards and I liked shuffleboard and horse collar and dominoes and shooting pool and dancing. God, I loved to watch my mom and dad dance. My dad was a dancing. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, that's the interpreter. Cool. I got some stuff you're gonna have to make up words for. <laughs> I'd like to have a camera in the other room where those guys are. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I had to go to the tavern to see my dad. So I didn't think there was anything peculiar about being in taverns. And I enjoyed the, uh, the festive atmosphere in the tavern. And I liked the smoke and the music and the dancing and the carrying on. And when we'd have a party, well, oftentimes it was at the tavern. You know, when it was mom's birthday or dad's birthday, well, we'd go to the tavern. And when it was one of the kids' birthdays, well, they'd get a keg of beer and set it out in the backyard. And all the friends from the tavern would come over and we'd celebrate the kids' birthdays. And fighting and carrying on was just never peculiar for me. I never, ever saw myself or any member of my family as alcoholic. I had no idea what an alcoholic was. Hell, my dad's a policeman. Yeah, he drinks and he drinks a lot. You know, but gee whiz, he works hard, too. But, you know, his disease progressed. And as I grew older, the violence and the chaos became more and more commonplace in our home. My parents married and divorced, married and divorced, married and divorced each other three times before I got out of high school. They couldn't live with each other. They couldn't live without each other. And that don't count all the times they just separated. You know, get out of the house. I can remember when I was a small boy hearing my mother scream. And I opened up the bedroom door and looked down into the converted garage, which was their room, and seeing my father on my mother's chest on the bed, hitting her in the face with his fists. And her screaming, Faye! I looked down in that whole bed covered in blood. And him look up at me and say, Get your ass back to your room. And I go. <laughs> I'm there. And me and my sister and my brothers, we get up the next day and we walk around and we act like nothing happened. What was it Carol said today? Family business stays at home. And we walked around on those eggshells. And act like nothing happened. And we just, what do we have to do to keep the peace at home? What do I have to say? What do we have to do? And my role in that family was the hero child. I was the overachiever and the perfectionist. I was class president, top team, 
emceed the pep rallies, headed up the paper drives, officer and student council, president of my class, played all the sports. Super, super boy. If I could just big up, well, I'm not pissing into any storms out on the deck of a ship. I mean, talk about delusion. Wasn't that great last night? It's kind of like, you know, having AA with Archie Bunker, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, really, we've had terrific speakers. It's hard to believe I'm the headline speaker. <laughs> you know, when you were standing on that the deck of that ship, fighting that storm and pissing into the wind? Remember, Brian? You got that in? He, doesn't he paint wonderful pictures with his words? Hey, those were waves coming back on you, buddy. <laughs> those were waves. Totally delusional. <laughs> Uh, uh. Like, there's a parakeet in here. <laughs> I swear. It's a real festive atmosphere. <laughs> So anyway, I was trying real hard to be somebody, you know, to be a good son, to be a good brother, you know, to take care, to be a good neighbor, to be a good student, to be a good athlete. All I ever wanted was to be good. And it just seemed like no matter how hard I tried, it didn't work. There was so much chaos in that family. There was a lot of sickness in the family. You know, my little brother Jack had colonitis, ulcers of the intestines. It was very rare in young people. But there was so much stress and so much chaos in that home that he had these terrible ulcers. And we had to take him out to Children's Convalescent Hospital in Bethany, Oklahoma. And he had to live in that convalescent hospital with all these sick kids for years. And they removed most of his intestines and they removed his rectum. And he had to have bowel movements out of a little bag on his side called a colostomy. And we'd go out there to visit him at that hospital and we'd see all those thalidomide babies and burn babies and cancer babies and kids with, that had been maimed and injured. And God, it would just scare me to death to go out there and see those kids. But we don't talk about it. You know, one of the rules in my house where I grew up is you just don't talk. If you haven't got something good to say, then don't say nothing at all. And they never asked questions. Never were we allowed to ask questions in my home. You know, my, we just did what we were told. As the best we could. Oftentimes I did what I was told and then I got in trouble for it because my dad couldn't remember what he told me. You know, you, you tell them in a blackout and then you don't remember. And I'm trying really hard. So when I was about 15, I got with some kids and the older boy went and bought us some beer. And we got that beer and we went and sat in a vacant field and we started to drink that beer. And God, it was awful. It was hot and I could hardly stand the taste of beer. <laughs> but I didn't want my friends to know. So I'm just forcing it to, mm. oh, you know, this is great. Mm. Oh. Yeah, and they'd throw their cans out and they'd go clink, 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 and I'd try to throw mine real far because it's going to go clunk, clunk, clunk. <laughs> I didn't want them to know that I wasn't just having a ball, you know. Because that stuff was awful. But you know, after forcing a little bit of that stuff down, things got easier. <laughs> One of the things I really liked about early drinking was I always set out to get drunk. You know, I never just accidentally got drunk when I was a kid. That was our goal. You know, <laughs> let's go get drunk. And so I never thought there was anything peculiar about being drunk. 
you know, that I would drink and get drunk. I'd get drunk, and I, from the time I was a little boy, I get drunk and I throw up. I throw up all everything. But when I was a kid, one of the wonderful things about drinking was that everything became funny. And all that stress and all that pressure and all that, all those feelings that I had when I would go home or when I was at school or when I was trying to be the best at anything, they just disappeared. They were gone. And everything became funny. <laughs> Fell down and broke his leg. <laughs> Did you hear what he said to her? <laughs> I can't believe he said that. <laughs> Wrecked his mother's car. <laughs> Everything was. I loved it. I loved it. It didn't matter what it tastes like. Well, I learned quick. This was the answer to all my problems. You know, all the stress was gone, all the anxiety was gone, all the fear was gone, and I loved the effect that alcohol had on me from the get-go. I had to acquire a taste. It's kind of like when I started smoking. You know, but everybody was smoking in the service. When I was in the army, and I, I wanted to be like everybody else, so boy, I'd turn blue, and you know, oh, it was great. It's an acquired taste, <laughs> so I acquired a taste for it. But I liked to drink, and I got drunk from the get-go. I can remember throwing bubble gum. I'd throw up on the bedroom wall, and it'd be bubble gum all in the puke. You know, I always threw up. When I went off to college, I'm throwing up. They made me a dry pledge. I'd never heard of this before. There was a lot of hazing back in the 60s. And I went to Oklahoma State University and I played Sigma Alpha Epsilon. And after a few parties, they said, Otto, buddy, you, when you drink, you go over the limit. You go, you go past reasonable. Now, you gotta go some in the 60s, you know, to make, embarrass the fraternity boys. You know? You really gotta go some. You know, but I'm the kind of guy that when I have a few drinks, I tend to lose my clothes. You know? And I always thought that you guys were having every bit as much fun as I was having. You know, I never knew that some people weren't enjoying it near as much as I was. The streaking, streaking was big back in the 60s. You know, we used to just get naked and run across the campus and, and doing the alligator. Anybody got any alligator people in there? Yeah, let's get down on the floor and rise. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's pretty good when it's just the old fat boys getting together. But on mom's day, <laughs> it don't fly real good. So after Mom's Day, they said, Otto, you can't drink anymore. And that was the first time I ever got in trouble for drinking. You know, I was a kid. I got stopped by the police for drinking, but I was always Freddy's boy. You know, you're Freddy's boy. So it's like I had immunity. I had immunity from prosecution. You know, I could do just damn near anything. Except, you know, I'll tell you really, I'd rather gone to jail than have to face my dad. <laughs> after his buddies went to work the next day and told him what they'd found his boy doing. Whew. Anyway, they made me a dry place. They told me I couldn't drink anymore until after I became a member. And I thought, well, that's, that's just hazing. You know. <laughs> you, you can't do that to me. You can't haze me like that. And so, you know, my justification was that, you know, they're hazing me. And so I continued to drink. And needless to say, I never became a member of that fraternity. <laughs> because, you see, I wasn't willing to quit drinking. I always thought that I chose to drink. That I drink by choice. I choose to drink. I think I'll have a drink. I like to drink. I'm a good drinker. I drink a lot. I enjoy drinking. I choose to have a drink. It never occurred to me that I never chose not to. I always 
chose to drink. Nobody ever said, hey, Otto, you want a beer? And I, I never said, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> no. no, no, not with dinner. No. You know, it was like, yeah, yeah, what do you got? And it never occurred to me that I wasn't choosing, that I had lost the capacity to choose as a very young person. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm the kind of guy that never caught a break. You ever catch a break? You ever been on the long end of the stick? I've been on the short end of the stick my whole life. I've been screwed since day one. I was born on Christmas Day. Yeah. Is that a shitty deal or what? Merry birthday. Happy Christmas. <laughs> no, no, I'm two. Now you get one. I've been screwed. I never have gotten enough. I don't know about you. I never got my fair share. And I've had an attitude about it my whole life. My dad used to tell me when I was a boy, son, you got a bad attitude. Where do you go to get another one? <laughs> you know, the only one I got, dad. I'm doing the best I can. I didn't do real good in college. <laughs> Something about that grain, alcohol, and grape juice. You know, it just really screws up your grades. And your <laughs> and being away from home for the first time, boy, I like that. And so uh, I didn't do very well, and I got drafted into the service in uh, 67. Not a good time to go into the service. <laughs> you know, but I, I thought, well, you know, this is okay. I, I probably could have, have dodged it. I was in ROTC, and, and I, I probably could have got around it. But we really didn't have the money for me to go to school. And I, it was really difficult for me to work and drink the way I like to drink. Hit the button. <laughs> it's time to change my pampers. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll go into service, you know, go ahead and do my two years, and then I'll get out, and then I can go to school on GI Bill. And so I went to basic training, and I just knew they were going to give me an MOS. They were going to make me, you know, and, and put me in the motor pool, because I'm really good with cars. I like cars. Or they would uh, make me a general's aide, because, you know, I'm real good with PR and stuff. You know, I'm class president and top gene, and I'm personable. Or, you know, put me in charge of the NCO club. <laughs> it would have been a great NCO club. I could have done that. It wouldn't have been a better one in the state. Anyway, but that's not what they did. They gave me a rifle and declared me an infantryman. <laughs> NCO club manager <laughs> And so I did everything I could do to dodge going to Vietnam I mean I did not want to go And so I went to NCOCS and became an instant sergeant You know Betty Crocker sergeant in E5 and uh, then I went to jump school and was a paratrooper. And then I was a DI for a while, you know, and I was blouse my boots and spit, the blouse and spit shine. And I was carry a 45 on my hip. Boy, there was nobody tougher than me. And, and then it was, you know, I only had a year left to serve and it was time to go to Vietnam. And away I went. And there was no way, there was no way to prepare me for the experience that I had in Vietnam as a combat infantryman. I'm really fortunate in that I didn't get to stay there very long. I was in the country less than three months. But when I went over there, nobody was staying a year. You know, Ted had started earlier in that year, and nobody was staying a year where I was at in the infantry. And they flew me into to a, a 
and LZ and they dump me off with a bunch of guys. I don't know who they are and they tell me I'm the sergeant. <laughs> I'm in charge. <laughs> I, I'm responsible for these guys' lives. <laughs> they were not happy. <laughs> you know, here comes this stupid little kid, don't know nothing, never been in combat in his life, can't hardly read a map and I'm in charge. But I always wanted to be in charge. I was afraid if you were in charge then I wouldn't get what I wanted. You know, so I like to be in charge. And uh, the, uh, Vietnam was a horror. It was an absolute horror. If we weren't fighting, just the living was miserable. The leeches and the bugs and the spiders and the ants and the animals and the misery and the cold and the mud. It was, it was a, a horrible life experience. But the combat was, was beyond my comprehension. You know, we had all kinds of training before we went to, to Vietnam, but there was no way to prepare you for seeing men die. We went in a, on a hot LZ one day. We went in with just weapons and water because we knew the enemy was there. And they had just blown this little LZ out of the jungle. All it was was fallen trees where they had knocked them down with artillery and bombs. And the helicopters couldn't even land. We were having to jump out of high side just a few at a time. And we came in right on top of this NVA position. And the rockets were coming out of the trees and they were hitting those helicopters. And the helicopters are down on the ground and they're burning. And there's just a few of us that have gotten in on the ground. And the CO radio's down. And he says, that we're going to drop firefighting equipment to you. We're going to drop some C4 in. I want you guys to blow down some of those trees, put some of the fires out. We'll get some more guys in there. Good plan. So he comes hovering over the LZ. And I'm watching to see where he's going to drop this equipment at. About that time a rocket comes out of the tree and show, hits that helicopter. And just took it right out of the sky, right in front of me. And it gyrated and auto-rotated and fell into the fire with the rest of them. A kid named Henderson next to me jumped up and ran out to start to help him. And hell, he's the only guy I could see. And I wasn't about to stay there by myself, so I went with him. And we went out on that LZ and started pulling guys out of helicopters. Everybody was real messed up, and the rounds were cooking off in the helicopters. And I mean, uh, there was no heroics. I was decorated for heroism that day, but I promise you there was no heroics. I was just scared to death. You know, and the door gunner had been blown out of the door of the helicopter when that rocket hit. And it had uh, fallen into the jungle, and we, went, we found him. And he's still alive, but he was a mess. And his, his legs were blown off. Pieces of his arms were blown off. And the top of his head was blown off. And he's still alive. And he's gurgling and he's making noises. And we drug him into the tree line and we used our boot laces to put tourniquets on his legs. And put pressure all over him and tried to get him to stop bleeding and tried to get him to shut up. So we didn't want him to draw fire. And the medic finally came and took over and we went back in. And I never saw that kid again after that day. But he was so horribly wounded. I figured there's no way he could live. And, uh, you know, for the rest of my adult life, that image was with me for the rest of my adult life. At night when I would lay down to go to bed, that's what I'd see. Is this, this young kid blown all to pieces. Or if I wasn't seeing him, I'd see my dad on my mom's chest. Or if I wasn't seeing him, I'd see the kids in that convalescent hospital. And my brain would just attack me at night. 
See, y'all don't understand. Life hadn't been fair. Life hadn't been easy. Don't begrudge me my drink. I need a drink. I can't get to sleep without a drink. Sleep comes hard. That's my problem. I have a sleep disorder. (laughs) See, because I can't get to sleep at night. The next day in that same... Engagement, I was wounded. I walked up on an enemy position and a short burst of machine gun fire rang out. And it just cut me in two. One round went through my left hip. The other round went through my left ankle. And I lay there on the ground. I was lost, alone in the jungle. And my very first thought after that short burst of fire was, I've been shot. I'm an alcoholic. I ain't stupid. <laughs> I've been shot. Second thought. God help me. Third thought. There is no God. September 22nd, 1968. I stopped even considering the idea that there might be a God. If there's a God, the son of a bitch is a terrorist. And I don't want anything to do with him. And I gave up right then and there. I became a self-reliant Defiant man, September 22nd, 1968. They dusted me off, sent me to a hospital in Yokota, Japan. I was there seven weeks. They sent me to a hospital in California. They sent me to a hospital in Texas, Fort Walters. And then I finally wound up at Reynolds Army Hospital, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, so I could be close to my family. <laughs> Don't you cry. Don't feel bad. When I turned 21, I'd been in the hospital four months. When I turned 22, I was still laying there. I had a gross staph infection that wouldn't heal. The bones would not heal. They just kept cutting pieces of me off. The first nine months, I spent in a body cast from my chest down. My whole body in plaster. All I could move was my arms. And I'd lay in that bed month after month after month. Well, they'd give me a pass every now and then when I was between surgeries. And my buddies would come down and they'd bring a pickup truck with a mattress in the back. <laughs> Because I got this big bar between my legs, you know, keeping my legs apart because I'm in plaster up the air. And they put diaper on me. They put cutoffs on me and then they lace them up the side like a diaper. And they put a t-shirt over my head and they throw me in the back of that pickup truck. And we go to the tavern. (laughs) That's where we go. I can't even sit down. They bring me in there and they just lean me up against the wall. Boys, I gotta pee. Okay, everybody gather around. Everybody big back lamp? I lost all humility. I lost all my humility before I was 22. Uh, I mean, they put me in so many compromising positions. They had me naked so many times. They, they cut on me and they, they cut my titties off. They, I mean, they, it was a horrible experience. You know, I had Demerol, pain medication, addicted to Demerol. Uh, and the horrible, horrible nightmares and the fear of bed. You know, you lay in bed for almost two years with pain and, and with horror, and then the bed becomes an unfriendly place. And I don't want to go to bed at night. And I don't know about you guys, but I was a night crawler. I stay up till two or three o'clock in the morning. I hate to go to bed. Two reasons why I don't want to go to bed. First, I don't want to hear myself think when I lay down. And the other thing is, is I don't want tomorrow to get here. Because I don't want to do this again. And so I would drink. And I would drink till I didn't have to lay down and go to sleep. I would drink till I could just hit the hit my head on the pillow and pass out. 
And I did that successfully for a while, long enough to be married and divorced and married and divorced. You know, I swore I wouldn't be like my daddy, but, you know, I didn't know any other way. I didn't know, I didn't know that it required some training to change. You know, that we're perfect products of our environments and our perceived experiences. And even though I swore I wouldn't be like my dad, and I thought I wasn't. Because I never hit my wife and I never hit my kids. So I thought that made me different. I'm not like my dad. You know, but I, I really, I was just like him. Uh... Married a little high school sweetheart. Got married while I was in that cash. She came to the hospital. The preacher married us, and she went back home to her, to her mom. And when I finally got out of the hospital, we got us an apartment, and we lived there. And we couldn't get along. Damn. You know, I don't know how to get along. I don't know how to fight fair. I don't know how to share. Uh, I don't know how to compromise. I'm as domineering and controlling as my dad, and we don't get along, and then we fight, and then she punishes me. And the way she would always punish me would be to withhold her sexual favor. Yeah, she knows. <laughs> she knows. Yeah, I can see it in her eyes. I'm moving over here. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's awful to go to bed at night with a beautiful woman and you can't touch her. You know? And I can't sleep. <laughs> I can't get to sleep, so don't begrudge me my drink. Or the pills that I'm taking. You know, this pain. Oh, God, I got pain. I had pus coming out of my butt for seven years. I had open draining wounds for seven years. I want you to know, that was my greatest excuse for drinking and drugging. See, that was the one I could say, you don't understand. You don't understand. Yeah, I know you've had it tough, but you don't have to live with this. Oh, oh, we got some violins in here. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. No, I was so sad. I was trying so hard. I'm this challenged person. I'm physically challenged. I used to love to go hurt myself. Because that gave me an excuse to take Demerol, <laughs> Darvacet, and Percocet. So, you know, and I'd go to the hospital. The VA was great. Great enablers. They sent me drugs in the mail. <laughs> yeah. And plus, and besides that, I was a dock worker. You know, and that didn't have anything to do with boats. You know. It just means Dr. A didn't know what Dr. B was giving me. Dr. B didn't know what Dr. C was giving me. And I promise you, I could walk into any hospital anywhere, drop my shorts, and they'd go, Oh, shit. What do you, what do you want? <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, yeah, go find a primary position, okay? <laughs> I'd rather, really rather not work with you, okay? And so, uh, you know, drinking and drugging myself to, to bed at night. You know, I really need to get some sleep. I'm tired. And uh, if I don't get some sleep, I won't be able to get up and go to work in the morning. I really need to get up and go to work tomorrow because, you see, I didn't go today. <laughs> and uh, matter of fact, I didn't go yesterday. And uh, you know, I'm having a really hard time getting to work. And, you know, they changed my hours at work because, see, I'm a really good worker when I'm there. I'm really good. And so they changed my hours. They said, Otto, you don't have to come in till noon. You don't have to come in till noon. Well, I couldn't get there at noon. It didn't matter what they made the hours, see, because I'm going to drink. I'm going to drink to a point where I can't function anymore. And so I couldn't get up and go to work. So I took a uh, disability. <laughs> I took a disability. I had to retire. I couldn't work anymore. And then the drinking really started. Whoa. Not to mention the fact that the family turmoil is becoming even greater. See, my sister's married and divorced and married and divorced and married and divorced. And she's got kids and they're in jail and they're out of jail. And my brothers are married and divorced and married and divorced and married and divorced. Christmas... 
is the holiday from hell at my house. <laughs> everybody's got all these extended families, you know, and everybody's got kids by this person and that person and this person and half brothers and half sisters and three quarter cousins and, and, you know, and everybody, every grandparent, every aunt and uncle wants to see those kids at Christmas. Shit, I put on my tennis shoes and go Christmas Eve. We just start running between the houses. I really, you know, Christmas wasn't all that bad. I come from the kind of family where we'd give each other drugs and alcohol for gifts. <laughs> oh, Grandma Cocaine, thank you, brother. Hey, you don't know what to get, Mom? Get up all the bourbon. Yeah. I always had an excuse for drinking. You know, I never saw myself as an alcoholic. No point in time. I'm a guy. I never tried to quit. I know there are many people in here who have tried and tried and tried to quit and can't quit. I never tried to quit. I never had a reason to quit. I could always justify, rationalize, minimize, explain, excuse away my drinking and all my problems were because of them. Because of that. Because of this. Because of it. It was never me and my drinking. Hell, drinking is the only thing that keeps me going. I don't know what I'd do without my Demerol. I don't know what I do without my Valium or my Xanax. When I don't have Xanax, I just... Like, I mean, just... You know, you know, y'all don't understand. Yeah, it just keeps getting worse. You know, I'm married and divorced, and now the family's just keep getting bigger. And, you know, my, my little brother, Jack, he, comes in, he beats my mother. You know, he takes her TV, he takes her stereo, takes her purse, whatever he needs to buy his drugs. And, and uh, she calls me, the hero child, to come and help her out. And I go over there and the house is all tore up. My brother's passed out on the floor. He's got paint all over his face from where he's been huffing paint. You know, spraying it in a bag of huffing paint. So I call the police and the police come get him, take him to jail again. And he uses this one phone call to call and tell me he's going to kill my baby daughter. <laughs> Love you too, brother. You know, I used to sleep with pistols. When I could sleep. I would sleep with guns, fear of my own family. And it's really tough to sleep. You don't understand. I can't get to sleep. I need some sleep. <laughs> Give me a drink so I can get to sleep. Well, they, uh, I went before the judge. They, had my, they served a warrant on my brother for using stolen credit cards. And so I went before the judge and I said, Your Honor, please help my brother. He's a glue sniffer and a paint sniffer and a drug addict. He needs help. I love my brother. Please help my brother. My mom stood in the back of the courtroom crying. The judge says, this is really an unusual request because generally the family pleads for mercy. You know? He said, two years, state penitentiary. And they put my brother in Big Mac, McAllister, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State Penitentiary. That wasn't what I had in mind for helping my brother. You know? But this is where the unmanageability starts to come into play. I don't know about you, but my best plans don't work. My best thinking sucks. I have been good intentioned my whole life, but things just don't seem to work for me. You know, and they put my brother in Big Mac and they put him to work painting. Give me a break! Come on! This is not what I had in mind. You know, I'm trying so hard. This was the story of my life. You know, I never got married intending to get divorced. Never. They put my brother to work painting. He got high. Found him, put him in a holding cell. They were going to transfer him back to maximum security. But he hanged himself there. He took his own life before they could do that. And I felt totally responsible. 
I can't believe. You know, my whole life I have kicked myself in the ass. I have loathed me. I cannot stand me because I cannot make things happen. Lack of power, that is our dilemma. And no matter how hard I try, I have danced as fast as I can. And I cannot make it work. I just am clueless. And it beat me to death. And I hated myself so much I couldn't stand to be me. And so I drank. I drank to hit the mute button so that I don't have to feel nothing. And that worked for just a little while. For just a little while. But, you know, I'm a social person. I like to get out and party and dance. You know, I like girls. I like to go to the races. I love, anybody want to go to the races after I get through tonight? It's like, you want to go out to the dirt track and watch the sprint cars? I'd much rather do that than dance. I love the car races. Uh, I'm a social animal. You know, I, I go to the races and, of course, I don't have any more friends anymore and I don't have any family and I don't see my kids, but I go to the races and, and I'll make friends there. You know, it'll be the guys that are carrying in the big coolers. <laughs> you know? I never made friends with the family bringing in the little totems, you know, <laughs> with the Cokes in them. You know? There's always the two big burly guys with the coolers under each arm. Those are my buddies. And we sit up in the grandstands and we, we drink beer. Watch the cars go in circles. I remember one time I was down in Tampa, Florida. I met these guys from Lindsay, Oklahoma. We're watching the cars go in circles. Eating corny dogs. And state fair was going on. We threw balls at Cupid dolls and looked at the girls. And then we left the racetrack and went to a nightclub. I really liked the nightclubs because I like to dance. I got all my jewelry on and I'm trolling. <laughs> you little, you little Alanons are dancing by. I got all my jewelry on, my diamonds, and big nugget bracelet necklace. Yep. Sure enough, one gets on there, you know. But I've been drinking 10, 12 hours this day. I mean, I am drunk. Anybody ever get shitty drunk? Don't drink, don't understand what it is to be shitty drunk. Just, you know, I come staggering out of that club two in the morning. I've been drinking all day, eating pills all day. And I'm holding on to the car doors to keep from falling down. It's cold out at 2 in the morning in Florida. February. But the sweat's just ringing off me. God, I'm sick. You ever done that? myself. Now I've got, I got puke on my boots and on my pants. Oh, God. Got little pieces of corn dog stuck in my nose. Go back in the club. <laughs> Give me another drink. <laughs> Gotta get that taste out of my mouth. <laughs> Tell my buddies. I got sick. 
I will never, ever, ever again, as long as I live, ever eat another state fair corn dog. <laughs> that greasy damn thing made me sick. And that was my truth. That was the truth to me. See, I never, I never blame the alcohol. Hell, this is my best friend. This is my buddy. This is the only thing that never shit on me. This is the only one I could always count on. It was always there and it always worked. It couldn't be his fault. So it was always them. It was always it. It was always something else. And I could always justify, rationalize, minimize, explain, excuse it away so that it wasn't the drinking. But there came a point in my life when, you know, I just couldn't get any lower. The VA would not let me crash. They kept giving me a little money every month as a disability pension. They kept sending me pills in the mail. My mom always had a liquor closet. We didn't have a bar. We had a liquor closet. And uh, I just couldn't crash. But I'd go from doctor to doctor to doctor trying to get fixed because I'm just miserable. I just can't stand to be me anymore. And I, these Valiums and these Xanax are just killing me because, I don't know, but I, I tend to take more than prescribed and I'm, I'm always running out and... When I run out, it's just got awful. And so I'd go to the doctor and say, put me on something else. Put me, put me on something that works. And finally this doctor said, oh, he says, I can't help you. Huh? <laughs> you know, I mean, they always had, you know, doctors love to write those prescriptions and issue those bills to a guy like me. I mean, it's real easy. You just write the script and charge the government, you know. And uh, he said, oh, I can't help you. That scared me to death. He said, oh, he says, you drink and drug too much. And I said, what? You don't understand. That was always my answer. You don't understand. Bring the violins. Come on. Come on. i got to show this guy. I mean, you know, my daddy beats my mama and I went to Vietnam and watched men die and I got wounded and I laid in the hospital forever and my brother hanged himself and, and my wives have left me and, and I'm all alone and I don't see my kids. <laughs> and he said, well, I can't help you unless you get cleaned up. Not the right answer. That's not what I want. I don't have a drinking problem. But I did think maybe I had a problem with the Valium and his annex. I'd seen a lot on TV about it being addictive. <laughs> so I agreed to go to treatment just to, you know, get off the Xanax and get on something else. <laughs> just fading the heat, you know. Now, really, I had no clue that I was an addict. I had no clue that I was an alcoholic. And I went to this treatment center just because I had to, hoping to get on a different medication. And this is where wonderful things began to come to pass in my life. Because it was an AA-type treatment center where they had AA people come out and they, they taught the 12 steps there. And they detoxed me and then, you know, we started the process of, you know, assertiveness training. And, you know, you make the little wallets and, you know... <laughs> You know, just you know, just anything to keep you busy and educate you. But the real gift was people from AA would come up there and do twelve step work. You know, and they they'd come up and they'd talk to us. And this one black guy came out, I was thirty seven, he was seventy three. Seventy three year old black man came up and talked to all of the patients and he rocked my world. It was the first time in my life I ever met a man I couldn't look him right square in the eye and say, You don't understand. You see, because he stood up there and told his story, much like I'm telling mine tonight. I'm not trying to tell you about your alcoholism or your addictions. I'm telling you about mine. And you might relate to me and you might not. If you don't relate to me, stick around somebody else. Bill will come up tomorrow and maybe you relate to him or you relate to Donna. But you'll relate to somebody. If you stick around, you don't go away. Well, I related to this guy. He knocked my wall down. You know, he was disabled. He tried to kill himself and his life's unmanageable. He was trying to asphyxiate himself and the gas stove blew up and just burned him. 
just burned him horribly. His fingers were burned off, and he was a black man, but he was pink. You know, and his skin was all burned, and he didn't have any fingers. They were just nubs. And, and yet this guy stood up there, and he was happy. He was happy, and he was sober, and he talked about his drinking, and God, it sounded like mine. And I couldn't look at him and say, yeah, but you don't, you don't understand, you know. You know, because, I mean, he was screwed. You know? Yeah, damn. Ugh. Yeah. And he made me look. You know, maybe I'm, a, yeah, maybe I'm an alcoholic. And it was one of those deals where like, whoa, I get it. I, I'm an alcoholic. My dad. My brother. I got, oh. It's like they've been telling a joke my whole life and I don't get it and then all of a sudden you get it. I get it. I'm an alcoholic. For me, I got excited. This was like the answer I'd found. The I've been looking for an answer forever. You know, I mean, I'm desperate for an answer. Kind of, I'm an alcoholic. It just makes so much sense. Okay, what do we do? What do we do? You know, teach me to drink. You know, let's do it right. And I said, well, now what we're going to do? We're going to work these twelve steps over here. We're going to. He says, this is the program of recovery right here. You know, this is what you want. We're going to, you want you to go to AA and get your support group and, and you work these 12 steps there. And I said, well, we admit we're parents over alcohol in our lives. You bet your ass. God. <laughs> yeah. You know, my dad was wrong. Practice don't make perfect. And where there's a will, there's not always a way. You know, a lot of times when there's a will, there's a conflict. You know? Came to believe the power of inner source, he restored to sanity. My nickname was Crazy Otto. I got no problem with that. Yeah. <laughs> Made a decision to turn the world lives over the care. God damn! <laughs> Look at this shit right here. Look, God, 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 God. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> I've been oh, I've been duped. Yeah, I went to treatment at a Catholic hospital. I should have went to Schick. You go to a churchy hospital, you get a churchy solution. I could not believe they had done that to me. You see, I don't believe in God. I gave up on God September 22, 1968, and there's a God. He can kiss my rosy red ass. You know, where's that son of a bitch been? You know, the guy named Mike from the AA group there in Oklahoma City came up to the hospital and he said, and he'd listen to me babble the way we sit and listen to the new guys babble, you know. And, oh, God, I'm on a tirade. And I'm telling him why there's no God, why there can't be no God. And all this shit has come down in my life. And if there's a God, why didn't He take care of the Jews? And if there's a God, where was He when He was beating my mama? And if there's a God, where was He when I was in Vietnam? And if there's a God, you know, and he just said, mm-hmm. And then at the end of that, he said, I told him my sad story about how I gave up on God. And he said, he looked me right square in the eye and he says, Hey, Otto, you don't have to believe in that God you gave up on in Vietnam. What do you mean? God is God. He said, no. He said, you quit too early there, buddy. It's uh, God as we understood Him. He says, what, what, he says uh, what would God have to be for you to take a chance and try and turn your will and your life over to His care, not control? And man, He had just thrown me a big old curveball. Because I always thought it was my job to figure out what God wanted me to be. See, and then if I could do it right, then God would love me. What do I have to do to get you to like me, Dad? What do I have to do to get you to like me, classmates? What do I have to do to get you to like me? He says, no. He says, you don't have to believe in that God. What would God have to be? And I thought it was ludicrous for me to define God. But I was desperate. I was desperate. So I thought about it and I did some writing. 
And Mike came back to the hospital a few days later and he says, well, what did you come up with? I said, well, if God was all-powerful and if He could do anything, if He was omnipotent, and if all He wanted with all His power was for me to get sober and like it, then I'd be willing to try. And I fully expected Mike to say, oh no, 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 no. Come on, Otto. No Disneyland gods. <laughs> you got to get you a hellfire and damnation gods. You got to get you one of the, you know, pick a team. Come on, what are you going to be? Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, Catholic. Come on, pick a team, pick a team. <laughs> you know, you're fighting all over the world. They're killing each other. Don't pick the wrong team. <laughs> you know. But that's not what he said. He says, okay, that's your concept of God. You pray to that God to keep you clean and sober. And you go to meetings and you read our book and you hang out with us and see what happens. And I did not believe for one minute that that would work. You know, and I've done a lot of things in my life for the wrong reasons and got good results. And this was one of them. I went to AA. I did everything they said. 90 meetings in 90 days. And I got me a sponsor and I'd call him every day. And I'd sit down with guys from the from the treatment center that we'd meet at my house every day and we'd read the big book, see, because I'm, and I'm documenting all this stuff. When I was in that vocational therapy class or whatever, occupational th- I made a big calendar because I'm going to document that I'm doing everything they said and when I get drunk, I'm suing those son of a bitches <laughs> for fraud. I will own St. Anthony's Hospital. It's going to be mine. I'll be drunk, but I'll be a rich son of a bitch while I'm doing it. And the deal was, you know, I did that for 90 days and I didn't drink. And I went to meetings and you guys treated me kindly and you'd take me to lunch with you and you'd take me to the movies and I was actually enjoying myself a little bit and I'd had, you know, 90 days, 120 days went by and I hadn't had a drink. Damn. My sponsor says, well, how'd you do that? And I said, well, I just didn't drink today. And he says, well, yeah. he says, you might try giving thanks to that God of your understanding, you know, that one that loves you and will want you to be sober and like it. And so I started saying thank you to God. And... I became more willing to work these steps. You know, what's happened is I worked these steps and lo and behold, I've had a spiritual awakening. You know, that's the purpose of working the steps. I always thought in the beginning that we worked the steps to to get sober, to quit drinking. No. You know, to get sober, you just quit drinking. (laughs) You know, I have yet to get drunk on a day I didn't drink. You know, it's amazing how that works, but we worked the 12 steps after we quit drinking to have a spiritual awakening. You know, it says having had a spiritual awakening as the result of working these not a result one of many we worked the steps to have a spiritual awakening what happened is my concept and understanding of God my concept and understanding of self evolved as I worked those steps four step was an eye opener for me I, I thought I wasn't afraid of nothing but I learned I was afraid of everything in the four step I thought that I'd been screwed and shit on my whole life and I found out that my problems were of my own making I'm selfish and self-centered to the max I suffer from delusion a distorted sense of self I see everything with a bias of perception that always honors me you know, I always put myself in a light that I think is favorable to me. And I never accepted responsibility for anything that were going on. It didn't matter that I was intolerant, I was impatient, that I was immoral. It didn't matter. I could always justify it and rationalize it away. And I began to learn some new truths about myself. And I asked God to take those things away from me, those defects that stand between me and my happiness and me and my usefulness to Him and others. And I went about to clean up the wreckage of my past and I made my amends and I began to work with others. And I didn't think I had anything to give, but I found that working with others is where I got most of the gifts. You know, it was amazing what the newcomers would say to me. And my life began to change. And while I'm doing 7, 8, 9, and 10, God's doing for me what I can't do for myself. It's kind of like somebody shared earlier. I always thought that I had to figure it out and fix it. 
But what happened is, as I'm doing 7, 8, 9, and 10, God does for me what I can't do for myself. And He made everything right for me. Today I live in a world that I didn't know existed. I'm happier, healthier, more whole physically, emotionally, socially, legally, financially, parentally, maritally than I've ever been in my life. I have a wife that I adore. I'm close to my children. My daughter will celebrate her one-year anniversary tomorrow. I gave her away. I had, no, I had nothing to do with her when I was drinking and using. Everything's been made right. A few years ago, my father died. And when I buried my father, I buried a loved one. Not a lovable one. A loved one. A man that I had known the joy of loving for years. And I learned how to do that in here. You see, I always had everything backwards. I always thought God could and would if I were good. And I couldn't be good, so I'm in trouble. I'm screwed. And what I found out is that's not how God works. Not my God. You see, God could and would because He's God. Not because I'm good. God can and will if I'll let Him. See, that's what God does. That's what makes Him God. <laughs> God's not like my earthly father. And so I began to turn everything around. I found out that, you know, you don't have to behave in a certain way for me to love you. I always thought that you had to earn it. You know, if you could create that warm fuzzy in me, then I would love you. <laughs> you know, I would treat you lovingly. But what I found out is that I can make a decision to love you and if you'll let me and I treat you lovingly, I'll fall in love with you. I have fallen in love with many a slobbering drunk. You know, just going out and trying to love them. And everything, great things have come to pass, somebody said. I mean, everything's been made right for me. I got a little puppy. One of my early sobriety, I got a little puppy. And it died. Oh, it liked to kill me. You know, I'm just barely sober. Oh, I'm trying to find this God. And what's God doing? He's little Aggie's dead. He's something cute little puppy. Johnny, God dead. Aggie's dead. What's God doing? You know, what's God doing? I remember going to a meeting. You know, he's saying, always go to a meeting. Well, I go to a three o'clock meeting and I'm telling these people, Aggie's dead. My little puppy, she's dead. She crawled up in the bed with me and died. And when I picked her up, she was stiff. God, I don't know how to do feelings. I don't know how to do emotions. I don't have any skills. I, you know, and this. God, and they called on me to share in this meeting. <laughs> Big mistake. Big mistake. I, I turned a table over. I'm up screaming, you know. Screaming. And I turned a table over, you know. What the hell is God doing? You know, what? I don't understand. I did everything. That dog went to the vet. She didn't miss a shot. She didn't miss a pill. She got fed special food. I loved her. I cared for her. And she died. What the hell kind of God is this? You know, through that little dog's death and through the love and the caring that I found in you because you didn't condemn me when I was nuts and you hung on to me and you loved me when I wasn't lovable, I was able to forgive myself for my brother's death. You see, I had done everything for my brother and he died too. It wasn't my fault. I did everything I knew to do for my brother and he died anyway and I began to forgive myself just a little. And I began to know the joy of loving. I forgave my father. God gave me that gift of Brahms. I met a Brahms one night, and I mean, you look at my ice cream, and there's a little old man in his car, and this guy comes out with two ice cream cones, and dad's locked in the car. <laughs> a little stupid old man. <laughs> and the kid's trying to tell him how to unlock the car door, and dad can't figure it out. I mean, dad is dumb. He's old. I mean, <laughs> and the ice cream is just melting all over this guy. You know, and he's talking to his dad, trying to tell him how to unlock the door. And I'm just watching and uh, this guy is patient and tolerant and kind and gentle and loving. And after a few minutes, pop, pop, the door opened. 
And he went in and got some napkins and cleaned himself up and he and Dad went off. And I sat there and I bawled. I sat there and I bawled because I, God took it from here to here. I'd been willing to forgive my father for a long time, but he took it from there to there. And I called my spouse and said, John, I said, you know, the only thing that's wrong with my relationship with my dad is that I'm not kind and patient and tolerant and understanding and loving. And I've forgiven my father. He says, well, you can go love your father. And I knew the joy of loving my father for years. He'd sit on the old tavern stools at the taverns. He was drunk right up to the end. And I'd sit there next to him and scratch his old burr head and say, I love you, Dad. And he'd look at me and go, I have, you know what really pisses me off about you? <laughs> no, Dad, but go ahead. Get it off your chest. See, it didn't hurt anymore. I love my dad. You know, you brought those house papers from your mother for me to sign? No, but go ahead. <laughs> and see, the joy is in the loving. The joy is in the loving. I, I've been sober a few years. My first wife comes to me and says, You're doing so good. You take the little bitch before I kill her. <laughs> Ooh, my first daughter came to live with me. She's a little bitch. <laughs> I told her, I said, Honey, I don't know how this is going to work. I said, I'm just going to love you the way the people in AA love me. I'm just going to love you no matter what. She looked at me and she went, Thank you. <laughs> she said about to make my life a living hell. She would say things to me and I just want to pull her lips off her face. You know, don't talk to me like that. You know, Where did she learn to talk like that? <laughs> Paybacks are hell, boy. I mean, but with the strength I found, you know, when we ask, when we do that seventh step prayer, you know, and we ask God to take away all those things that stand between us and our usefulness to Him and others, and to give us the strength to do that. Well, I found the strength to love my daughter, even though she wasn't lovable. And I loved her the same way you loved me, unconditionally. I loved you, her the same way that I loved the newcomer, unconditionally. The newcomers can't screw up. If you're new or nearly new, you can't screw it up. You can't screw it up bad enough for us to say, don't come back. You are welcome here. We don't care what you've done or what you'll do tonight. You are welcome here. And that's the way I treat my daughter. And I just loved her. And it was tough. She's a little bitch. <laughs> but you know what? After about a year, you know, she got tired of those dirty clothes stacking up in her room and those dirty dishes under the bed were starting to stink, you know, and she started changing. And you know what? I earned her trust. I earned her trust. And she began to open up to me and our relationship began to change. And it wasn't because I mandated anything. It was because I just treated her lovingly. I just treated her with respect and kindness. I stopped playing daddy and started trying to just be somebody who loved her. Because I didn't know how to be a dad. She'd been with me for a little while and things were going better. And I, I bought her a little car. It's a little shit car. She can't drive. And I like cars. I got a really cool car. <laughs> uh, she's got this little shit car, little Honda Prelude, little 82, you know, where you step on the gas and it just makes more noise. It doesn't go fast. You know, just, Why? She can't get hurt in that, you know. She, she can't drive. She can't see. She got big, thick glasses, you know. And she's hitting the curbs and shit. <laughs> so anyway, one night she comes to me. It's a beautiful night. And my car was a convertible. She says, "Dad, Dad, can I take your car tonight? I mean, can Kristen and I ride in the convertible tonight?" And I thought, oh, it's such a pretty night. She's been so good, you know. And I'm such a people pleaser, and I'm so afraid to tell her no because I think she won't love me. And I said, "Okay, but be careful." Careful. Okay, Dad. Well, you know what happened. Hell, it wasn't 1030. Lee, Dad, I was going too fast and I burned the car. You okay? Kristen, okay? Can you drive the car? 
where yet. Where they're not supposed to be. Stay right there at that phone. I'll be right there. All bets are off. This little bitch is dead. Screw this love you no matter what shit. It's my car. And on the way out there, you know, I mean, I'm just, just about to pull the steering wheel off this little 82 prelude. And it won't go any faster. And I know I'm going to be driving it for a while. And I could hear her say, Dad, I was going too fast and I crashed your car. She did the unthinkable. She did the unheard of. I come from a family where no one ever tells the truth, where no one is ever vulnerable, where nobody ever takes a chance of looking bad or less than perfect. And I heard her say, Dad, I was going too fast and I crashed the car. I can remember when I told my dad, Dad, a deer ran out in front of me and I swore to miss it. <laughs> Shit, I was just going too fast. <laughs> And he beat the shit out of me. He wailed me. He beat me damn near to death. My little brother's hit under the bed. I'll never forget it. And that night, I was able to go to my daughter and comfort her. See, she was already scared to death. She was already filled with guilt and remorse, all kinds of emotional pain. She knew what that car meant to me. She knows what it's going to do to insurance. She knows we don't have the money to... She knows. She's dying. She wants to please me just as much as I wanted to please all of you. Isn't that a great time for Dad to come whip your ass when you're really suffering? (laughs) But no, I was able to go and comfort my daughter and hold her close and tell her it's okay. And see, I became the loving father. That's what I always wanted to be was a good dad, a good son, a good neighbor, a good friend. I never knew how. I was too quick to punish, too quick to judge. I didn't know how to just love. And you all taught me that here in AA. I learned it by finding a loving God through working these 12 steps. A God that does for me what I can't do for myself. He's made all these things right. I got story after story. I know I've talked too long, but I got story after story after story of what God's done for me. I'm putting a dog on the roof and it pees on my head. I call my sponsor, Johnny, God made the dog pee on my head. Because I was doing something really stupid. I'm putting her up there to chase a frisbee. I don't have a ladder. I didn't think about how you're going to get her down. I just shoved her up there, you know. Go get it, go. And she peed and peed all over me. I put her down on the ground. I started to laugh at myself. I couldn't believe I was going to do something that stupid. I called my sponsor, Johnny, Johnny. He says, well, I don't know if God did that or not. I don't know. I believe he could. But... I think you should get over to the clubhouse and tell everybody. I go to a meeting I don't usually go to. You know, they don't know me. They don't call on me. They don't know I'm a headline speaker. (laughs) So it's burning desire time, you know. (laughs) And they call on me and I start to share that story, you know. And I hear, do you ever do this where you hear yourself say something you didn't know you were going to say? Yeah. More is going to be revealed to me. Because I'm telling that story and I tell him I put the dog down on the ground and I began to laugh at myself. And my old behavior would have been to kill that damn dog. And boy, that rolled over me like a tidal wave. See, because that was not a figure of speech. That was the truth. 
I'd always had big, mean dogs my whole life. And I beat the shit out of them. I made them mean. I made them evil. I made them nasty. They go through glass doors getting after people. I thought that was awesome. You see, I never hit my kids. I never hit my wife, but I beat my pets. I was just like my dad. I didn't know what to do with that anger. I didn't know what to do with those feelings. I didn't know what to do with those emotions that he had. And so they would come out of him sideways at the things he loved. And they would come out of me sideways at the things I loved, my pets. I'm not proud of beating my pets, but I'm so grateful that God changed me that day and gave me the insight to know. And that became a key ingredient in my life. And I love Speedway. I had that dog as long as I've been sober, and I love Speedway. Changed my life. And I just keep not drinking one day at a time and going to meetings and working the steps and trying to be of service, and God just keeps doing these things for me. And the more He does, the more I believe. You know, my faith is strong. You know, for 28 years, I had no hip. I couldn't do this. Two years ago, I got a hip after 28 years of being like this. 28 years. I hadn't sat on the toilet in 28 years. He talks about riding a car, driving a car and being so proud. I was so proud the first day I could sit down and take a shit. <laughs> oh, man. Look at this. Look at this. See, I couldn't do that. For 28 years, I was like this. 28 years, I couldn't bend. I was just like this. I couldn't ride in the back seat of a car. I couldn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't bend because I had no hip. And they told me I could never have a hip. They said, because I had all this gross infection. They said, oh, you have to go 10 years without infection. Maybe we'll give you a hip. Well, hell, I had pus coming out of me all the time. But you know what? I got sober. And 10 years after I got sober, I hadn't had any infection. And I found a doctor that said, I'll try. And he gave me a hip. There's no limit to what God can do. In the long version of the surrender prayer, it says God will make right everything that we surrender to Him. And I gave it all. I'm in both feet in this deal. I'm in for everything. It's like, if you all didn't come to the Al-Anon speaker today, you missed the big secret. You missed it. She gave it to us. Carol gave us the secret. You missed it. It's all the apples and the oranges. If you got the apples and oranges and they're all in there, you got it. If you weren't here, come back next year. I've been in Al-Anon for 12 years. I got sober in AA. I got happy in Al-Anon. If any of you are having trouble with your relationships, if you're not happy with your sobriety, I invite you to join us in Al-Anon. It's, a, it's an advanced course in relationships. You all have been real patient. I've talked past reasonable. Uh, some of you all have to pee as bad as I do. Uh, so I'm going to quit with one more story. It's got to make right everything. And a few years ago, I was at the races on Friday night like I always go. I love to go to the car races. And every Friday night, I go to the races. I've done it since I was a little boy. I never miss the races. If it's raining, I go to the races and sit there in the rain hoping it'll stop. So that maybe they'll run late. And it was a beautiful night. There wasn't a cloud in the sky and the car count was great. And the cars were running out state fair speed, great speedway in Oklahoma City. And the races were good. And right in the middle of the races, I got up and left. And I had no idea why. I mean... I, I couldn't, if you'd asked me why, I didn't know. I just got up and I just left. And as I'm walking down the runway and I'm leaving the grandstands, I really felt sad. I mean, I don't get it. I don't know. I mean, I was sad because my passion is gone. You know, I mean, I love racing. And all of a sudden, man, I'm going home in the middle of a good race. And I don't have a clue why. I'm just going home. And I walk in the door at my house and my wife says, what are you doing here? I said, I don't know. I just soon watched TV tonight, I think. She says, okay. We sat down. 
It was 9 o'clock Friday night and turned on the TV. ABC 2020 is coming on with Barbara Walters and Hugh Downs. You know, I don't watch 2020. And the first little vignette that comes on is called The Gift of Life. It's about a surgeon. This guy's writing books about emergency room traumas. And he's interviewing the top trauma specialist in the United States, a doctor named Kenneth Swan. And the guy writing this book says, Dr. Swan, what was your worst emergency room trauma? What was your worst trauma experience? And he began to recount when he was a young surgeon in Vietnam in 1968. And they brought in a soldier who was so gravely wounded that the consensus was to medicate him, set him aside, declare him expectant, and let him die. You see, this man's legs were blown off. Pieces of his arms were blown off. He had shrapnel the size of your thumb in the middle of his brain. His eyes had been blown out. The top of his head is open. And I sat on that sofa and I listened to that and I just started to shake. I couldn't believe it. It just sounded too familiar. And my wife came over and sat on the sofa and she hung on to me. She said, what's the matter? And I said, I don't know. I said, I don't know. And so the, the guy says, well, what'd you do? You know, and Dr. Swan operated on this guy and he saved him. He went against the consensus and he operated and he saved him. And the guy says, well, did you make the right decision? What would you do? Did you save him for a life of some quality? Or, I mean, God, he's all fucked up. I mean, you know, what? how did he turn out? And Dr. Swan didn't know. And so they said, well, you know, you want to find out? And Dr. Swan said, okay. And so they set about to find him. It took him two years. It took him two years to find Ken McGarity, who lives in Columbus, Georgia. And they began to tell Ken's story. And Ken's in a helicopter trying to drop firefighting equipment to infantrymen. Pinned down in a fiery jungle. And a rocket came out of the trees and blew his helicopter out of the sky on September 21st, 1968. And I lost it. God damn. This is my kid. This is my nightmare. This is, that's him. That's him. God damn. That's him. You know, what's, what's God doing? You ever do that to your sponsor? What's God doing? What's, what's, why is he doing this? You know, if you got a good sponsor, they would say, I don't know. <laughs> he didn't tell me. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So, I watched this story. Ken's got a wife. He's got no legs. He's got no eyes. But he's got a wife. He's got two kids. He married since Vietnam. He's an incredible, charismatic person. But he's violent. And he's abusive. And he self-mutilates. And he drinks and he drugs. And he can't put Vietnam to bed. He can't get home. He's stuck in Vietnam. And I thought, maybe I can help. I found a way out. I found my way home. Maybe I can help. Plus, you know, I saved this guy. <laughs> so, I called Dr. Swan. Dr. Swan called me. He called Ken. Ken called me. I could prove to him that I was who I said because the commander of his helicopter is the man who decorated me that day. When I told him that it was Colonel John Yarbrough that decorated me, that was the commander of his helicopter and he could no longer deny that it was I and a kid named Henderson that saved him that day. And that started a relationship between me and Ken. We would talk long distance on the phone. Ken's, Ken's yeah, he's got a wife and yeah, he's got a kids and yeah, he's charismatic, but he's, he struggles. Can you imagine living? He has no, I mean, I don't talk about stubs. He has no legs. He sits on his tailbone. He can feel with two fingers. That's all. He has no eyes. His face is all scarred and his teeth are snaggled from all the wounds. 
and he struggles and he suffers. And so I would call and I'd talk to him and I'm trying to help him get home in Vietnam. I'm trying to do the things I learned to do in AA. And what happens is Ken drags my ass right back into that jungle. And he took me places I didn't want to go. And God damn. I mean, his, his, his recollection was a lot stronger. <laughs> I'd forgotten most of the shit he remembered. He knew the names of the guys we put in those body bags. He knew the call signs. He knew the letters. He knew the name of the mission. I mean, God damn. And I'd hang up on the phone. I'd just be nuts every goddamn time. You know, God damn, this isn't what I was looking for. This isn't the plan. And shit. But they're making a movie about Ken's life. <laughs> oh, okay. Movie. A movie deal. <laughs> I can put up with this. I can do this. Yeah. I bet they'll get Leonardo DiCaprio to play me. <laughs> so, you know, I don't want to rub this guy the wrong way. So, we keep talking on the phone. I got a terrible resentment. I really do. You know, the guy, he just, he just struggles and struggles. And, and I'm trying so hard to help him. You know, I, every time we would talk, I kept waiting, you know, for him to say thank you. You know, why, why, you know, I don't think that's asking too much. You know, to just say thank you. I, I mean, I'm going, I saved his ass, you know, 30 years ago, and I'm going back into those jungles with him two and three times a week again. You know, I don't think it's too much to ask for him to just say, Otto, thank you. Thanks for saving my life. Ain't a son of a bitch when that movie company called me yet. You know, so I mean, he could say thank you, couldn't he? And I mean, every time I talked to him, I'd hang up on the phone, I'd just be a little madder. You know, no thank you. I haven't got my thank you yet. Where's my thank you? God damn. You know. So, one day Ken called me, he says, You're writing a book. He says, well, I need you to send me some memorabilia and some stuff you've got from Vietnam. We'd like to put it in my book. Oh, you son of a bitch. Yeah. Sure, <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> and so I sit down and I'm writing the cover letter to go with this stuff I'm sending to Ken. I'm sending my little word processor and I type it out. And I take it in and I show it to my wife when I'm through with it. And of course, you should never do that. Don't ever. <laughs> Don't let your wife proof your mail. Don't do it. Because right in the middle of that letter, I wrote, Ken, I got a resentment. You've never said thank you. You know, I figure it's time that he know that that's bothering me. Because I live in the truth. The truth is bothering the shit out of me. You know? And my wife looks at this and she goes, that doesn't belong in there. That, that, this shit right here, that doesn't go in there. I said, well, that's the truth. It goes right in there, right there. And she says, no, isn't there a spiritual axiom? You know, don't you tell me about this spiritual axiom, you know, where if somebody or something bothers you, there's something wrong with you? Shit! Yes, dear. Yes, dear. So I go back to my word processor to edit this deal out. I gotta change it, you know. God, I don't want to rewrite this whole damn letter. So I sit down, I'm just going to rewrite, just change it so it makes sense. And I sat there, and what came out was God's gift to me. What came out was the greatest healing I've ever known in my life. Because what came out was, Ken, I've never said thank you. I looked at those words on that screen and it just frightened me. I mean, it was the truth. That was the truth. That was the truth. You see, for all these years, I'd only seen me running into the burning jungle to save Ken. <laughs> truth is, I'm trapped in the jungle. Ken flew into harm's way trying to save me. 
and he gave his sight, and he gave his legs, and he lives in that darkness with that disability for me. And nobody had ever told him thank you. I sat there and cried my eyes out, and it healed me, and it made me whole. And I don't have dreams about Vietnam anymore. And I can talk about Vietnam now. And I have a whole different attitude about my fellow man and about God and that Vietnam experience and the Holocaust and everything else. God is in His heaven and all is right on earth. That's what came to me. My whole life, I always felt like there was something wrong. It's wrong. There's something wrong. It shouldn't be that way. This shouldn't be happening. This, should, this is wrong. This should not be happening. Donna should not have lost those two children. There's something wrong. And what I learned that night was that God is in His heaven and all is right on earth. And it made me whole. It changed me. And today everything's fine. I still talk to Ken all the time. We talk two, three times a week. He's a grandpa. He just became a grandpa. Unbelievable. Ken's a grandpa. They sent me a picture on the internet. He's got this little baby up next to his cheek. See, he can't see her. He has no eyes. He can't feel her but with two fingers. But he presses that little baby up against his cheek so he can smell her. And he can feel that baby on his cheek. And I can't tell you the joy that that brings me. I don't see those horrible images anymore. I see Ken with that baby against his cheek. And when Ken and I talk, we don't talk about the things that, the awful things that happen. We talk about the joy in our life. Ken was watching an Alabama game not long ago, football game. He's a big Alabama thing. And he likes to holler and carry on. He's watching the football game. Get it? He's watching the football game. (laughs) And he tumbles off the bed and he's stuck head down between the bed and the wall. Just screaming his ass off, you know. And the wife and the kids just leave his ass there. They they think he's hollering at the football game, you know. I mean, he's stuck. He's a hell of a guy, and so am I. You know, I never liked me before. I like me today. I like who I am. I like what Alcoholics Anonymous has done with my life. I like the person that I am today. I like the way I live. I like the things I do. I don't like that I talk too long. Thank you for letting me share. <laughs>